As some of you may already know, I have uh, recently published the first of what I hope will be a series of books looking at the really the foundationally important writers in Christian and church history and providing uh, contemporary English versions of these books. The first of these is Martin Luther's commentary on the Epistle to the Galatians, which uh, was published about a month ago and is pretty much available everywhere, Amazon and all those other places you'd expect it to be. But my plan is to perhaps do an audiobook or a podcast version of this, and I'm doing that by launching it on Kickstarter. I'm only looking for around about £250, which I suppose is about $300 or slightly less, in order to do this. The plan being is to provide an audiobook, a podcast version of the book, and that launch money is to pay for the first year, 18 months, subscription fees for the startup costs and the monthly fees of doing it as a separate podcast. If that happens, then a new podcast called the Martin Luther podcast will launch. And my plan is to do the same thing with other great Christian writers. I'm already working on works by Spurgeon, by John Calvin, by John Wesley, by Augustine. The plan will be to make those all available as separate podcasts and each one, if the first one's successful, I shall be launching as a new podcast to allowing those works to get out there in the public domain in a way that's understandable. My motivation for doing this was when I find myself studying philosophy recently and reading and, and examining all these classic philosophical tracks, people like the Stoics, the Enchiridion, all the people you've heard of, Plato, people like that, that there were contemporary English versions of all those ancient writings available in the modern language. But when I came to looking at some of the older medieval and beyond texts of these important Christian writers, there just wasn't the same. They just weren't as freely available. So that was the purpose. Now, if I can launch them the way I launched the Bible Project podcast with a small startup fee, I pretty much find that these podcasts then within about two years become self-sustaining, both through Patreons and by advertising revenue. Now, I don't host my podcasts in such a way that it attracts general adverts. You may choose to listen to them on platforms where advertisers place ads based on your browsing history, but I don't use the process my podcast provider is not tracking your browsing history and the only adverts you will hear are individually approved Christian adverts that I've been approached with requesting to advertise on my podcast. I have a look at what they're doing, what they're saying, what their, their mission statement is, and then occasionally I accept those. And that's the model I use for the Bible Project. And that is pretty much nearly reached the point after two and a half years, although the Bible project is huge and has much higher costs than the startup of this at the minute, I'm getting close to meeting my costs there. So anyway, the plan today is just to tell, give you a little bit of background to who this guy Martin Luther is, 
explain a little bit about the history and the thing that motivated him. The 20, 30 years running up to the publication of this book in 1535 of what the background he was facing in and why it's so important. And then to offer up episode one, which is the introduction and forward of the book before recording the main chapters. It's going to be about nine and a half hours in length as a podcast series, just for this book. But of course, if it's successful, then others will follow, both by Luther and other people. The format and the length's not totally decided on. It might be nine or ten one-hour episodes, or more likely I'll probably go for about double that in half-hour episodes. So anyway, let's just have a little think together about the situation in the background, in the lead-up to Martin Luther's publication of this, his commentary on Romans, and of course his 95 Thesis. Those are the, the main books that basically embedded the Reformation. I read somewhere that in Europe, within 50 years of the publication of these books, over 50% of all books published in Germany were the writing of Martin Luther. So with that said, Let's take a little bit of a journey back in history to the time is June and it's 1517 and the town is a place called Montburg in Germany. And in that town on that day, citizens are clearing the way as a column of road monks march through the town. The streets are narrow and they're, they're filthy dirty and at the head of the procession there's a monk carrying a large cross. It's actually also as others are carrying a papal standard. And bringing up the rear of this unusual procession is a very large, heavy man called Johann Tessel. He is standing atop a large cart and he's blessing the crowd as he passes through. Now this guy, Jonas, is a, Johannes, is raised around, aged around 50 and he's a huge, heavy man with an enormous belly and a round face and as the procession passes behind people, they flock behind it, following the cart with him on it to the marketplace. Johannes then climbs down to the ground as the other monk erect in the centre of the square a series of trestle tables. They also get down from the cart uh, large boxes, and there from those boxes they unpack large bundles of parchment certificates, and they pile them on the individual trestle tables. And large crowds gather, and Johann raises his hands, and with a huge voice, I have to say I would probably cast Brian Blessed if I was making a movie of it, he calls for silence. Then he begins to speak, his huge voice echoing around the square. Johann preaches of God and of heaven, but also of the torments of something called purgatory. Now he's a persuasive speaker, but he's as much a street hustler as he is a Christian preacher. He has come here to sell the people of Montburg on this day, as he has done in a hundred towns and villages across Germany before. He's come to sell eternal salvation. And he tells the crowd that for just a few coins dropped in to his case, people can buy what is called an indulgence, which is a parchment certificate from the Pope himself that forgives their sins and guarantees their entry into heaven. And for a small extra additional payment, the townspeople can even secure the release of a soul that's already in purgatory, a loved one maybe, a mother, a father, or even 
as was very common in that day, a child that was lost far too young. With his portrays of words and a smiling face, Johann preys on the people's guilt and fear. And his saying, his famous phrase, which has echoed down through history ever since, he says, as soon as the coin in the copper rings, a rescued soul to heaven springs. It's not long before a long line of people, like in every town he's visited before, is winding around the square and coming up to one of Johann's wooden chests and dropping their gold coin in, each one supposedly believing they're freeing a family member from purgatory and also ensuring a place in heaven, not only for them, but for someone who has already died. You see, this is the early 16th century and the sale of these so-called indulgences is big business for the medieval Catholic Church. And men, just like Johann Tesler, he's obviously the most famous one, but he's not the only one. They're only too happy to persuade the poor believers of not only Germany, but across that whole region of Europe to give up their money for a chance, well, for a promise of paradise. But this practice is controversial even among medieval Catholic Christians at that time. Many are outraged by this type of religious salesmanship, particularly a young monk named Martin Luther. And he will protest the sale of these indulgences and his writings will ignite a new religious movement in Europe, which will become known as the Protestant Reformation. It will be the most serious break, the most serious schism in the history of the Catholic Church and it will begin in earnest when an edict banning Luther's writing and teachings is issued in a German city called Worms on May 25th, 1521. But let's go back a few years, three and a half years in fact, and look at Martin and his situation at the University of Wittenberg where he's placed. On that day, Martin Luther scrawls his name at the bottom of a long letter written to his bishop. Martin Luther at this point is a monk in his early 30s, a popular professor of biblical studies, and he's regarded as one of the very brightest minds in the university. But for several years, Martin has been contemplating not only the nature of Christian faith, penance and forgiveness, but by doing that, he increasingly is seeing that the sales of these indulgences are a corruption, something that he believes is actually incompatible with the teachings of the Bible. And he's angry about what he sees happening all over Germany, where he sees the poor being encouraged to buy scraps of paper that will supposedly offer them freedom from purgatory and a guarantee direct to heaven. Now, for months, Martin has wrestled, wrestled with his conscience, but before today, he has done nothing about it. Indulgences are approved by the Pope, after all, and Martin knows that opposing that could be seen as questioning the very highest authority of the Church. But on this day, he has pushed past his worries and decided to act by writing this letter to his local bishop. In it, he provides an academic explanation of his concerns. It's actually entitled A Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. Not exactly a snappy title, I'm sure, but it became known as his 95 Thesis for short. Now Martin Luther himself thinks this letter is a cautious, limited, 
academic intervention, nothing too abrasive, but he doesn't just send his letter to the bishop. He decides to share his idea with other academics at the university as well. Now, at first, little notice is given to these ideas. It just circles within that tight-knit academic community. But early the next year, in 1518, someone translates Luther's words. His thesis was written in Latin. They translated into ordinary, everyday German. And within weeks, copies of this work are circulating, not only in Germany, but throughout all of Europe. Luther's arguments are more radical than perhaps even he realised. Striking at the very heart of the Catholic Church, and very soon he becomes one of the most famous and controversial men in all of Europe. Many in Germany embrace his radical teachings and his ideas, and a movement for the reform of the Church begins to grow. Now, of course, this does not go unnoticed by the Pope, and by October 1518, Pope Leo X, as he was then, forces Luther to explain himself and subject himself to a heresy examination in Germany itself. But this move only seems to embolden Luther. He feels the Pope is now trying to silence him. And a three-day hearing with the papal legate descends into these two sides, trading biblical verses and theological arguments. By its end, Luther still refuses to recant his belief, and his friends decide to struggle him out of the town to avoid arrest. Two and a half years after this, Martin releases his 95 Theses that swiftly followed by a decree, something known as a papal bull, that in turn alleges 42 heresies against him and all his writing. It declares, that papal bull declares, that unless he recants, recants these heresies within 60 days of receiving the bull, this letter, that he will actually be officially declared a heretic and arrested and will probably be burned with the Pope's approval. Luther does not recant. Instead, his reply to the Pope is to decree in public and it is to do something very dramatic. On December the 10th, 1520, a bonfire is lit in Wittenberg but it is not Luther's book that is thrown into the flames, into the fire. Instead, he approaches it and tosses a copy of the papal bull into the fire. Reconciliation with the Pope now seems impossible. But in the spring of the following year, in 1521, in the German city of Worms, this extraordinary meeting, the showdown, will take place. There will be one last attempt at saving the church from this damaging split, but in the end, its outcome will spark a revolution and contribute to the greatest division the church has ever seen. Luther and his colleagues and followers have all been summoned to this distant time by the most powerful man in the world, the young Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. This 21-year-old rules over Germany as well as much of the rest of Europe at this time. He is a devout Catholic and he despises Luther's work. And he is eager to have him tried as a heretic. But Charles knows that many people in Germany are sympathetic to his ideas. And they have ignored demands to arrest him across the whole country. And chief amongst those who support them is one of Martin's benefactors, an influential regional guy called Frederick of Saxony. This guy, Frederick of Saxony, he believes 
that before Martin is condemned, the monk must have a hearing before a council of what he describes as learned men. And since Charles requires Frederick to support the rule of the Holy Roman Empire, it's agreed. It's a reluctant agreement to this suggestion, but in return he's promised safe passage. The Emperor has asked Luther to come to the city of Worms, which has become famous as the place where this confrontation takes place, for this hearing. Hope is that if Martin can be persuaded to soften these incendiary statements he's now making, then reconciliation with the church can still be secured. But Luther, it would seem, has already released something in Germany. It's becoming almost a popular revolt against Catholic Church and its teaching. When Luther arrives in the town, he's actually welcomed by the locals ecstatically. Throngs of people uh, turn out, and when he's invited to preach in the town that Sunday, the congregation is so large that it's large that it spills out of the church into the streets. By the end of this brief visit, it's clear that whatever happens at Luther's hearing the next day, it's not going to be easy for the Catholic Church to quell what the monk has begun. They can't put the stopper back in the bottle. And when he arrives for the actual, the diet as it's called, the uh, cross-examination at Worms uh, some days later, he's greeted with even greater excitement than uh, almost any time previously. Thousands of local and regional people have surged into the city to welcome him. There are in fact trumpets playing in the tower of the cathedral as Luther walks, turns on, out, he almost is paraded through the street to the place where his cross-examination will take place. But you see, Martin Luther is not the only famous face in time because this imperial diet is underway in the city and it's a gathering of the most powerful men in Germany and it includes now Charles V himself. These are the men who are going to hear Martin Luther's case. And just one day after his ecstatic, ecstatic entry, his welcome into Worms, Luther is led into the small chamber in the palace of a local castle. Pile of books is placed on the table and the chairman steps forward and asks Martin if they are his works and Martin confirms they are and he asks, will you recount? Do you recount in whole and in heart, they say, what he has written? Now, this is the key question of the Reformation and the home rule room falls silent and there's a long pause as they wait for his answer. Luther requests an adjournment. He says he wants to consider his answer. So many of his works has been gathered and presented to him that day. He says he cannot immediately say which, if any, he would now reject or has changed his mind about. With a reluctant scrawl, his request is granted and the hearing reconvenes the following evening. And this time even more people cram into the chamber and the emperor's guards have to elbow their way through the crowd and escort the emperor Charles to his throne. By this time, the young emperor is determined that he will have the answer before he leaves. Luther knows what he will say in this room will echo across Europe. He doesn't want to waste his, his chance. And when he's asked for an answer to that question, and he's asked it again, the same one for the day before, Martin delivered a long and a brilliant speech, which is available, and I would hope to make available someday myself in this new project. But it, he actually turns the spotlight onto his accusers, asking them, who do they truly serve, God or man? 
Do they serve God or this man in the Vatican, he actually says. Angered, the chairman, leading the hearing, keeps pushing him for a simple, plain answer. Does Martin, Luther, does he recant his works or not? Cornered at last, Martin must speak plainly, and he says, and I quote here, Unless I am convinced by scripture and by reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant. With that, the hearing ends, and it ends in uproar. The defiant Martin is carried away by cheering supporters, his arms held aloft. Luther's enemy are pleased that they've got him now at last to confess in public. Now all that will be left for them to do is issue the edict that will confirm Luther as a heretic and call for him to be delivered, delivered onto the Catholic Church for certain execution, most likely in the horrible way of being burned at the stake. Luther's followers, rather, what they do is they sneak him out of the city in disguise he, so he isn't in Worms anymore and no one is able to capture him in order for him to face his punishment. And following the hearing, he actually escapes the whole city and the region altogether unharmed. Luther's disappearance led some to think he'd been kidnapped and murdered by his enemies. But in fact, it emerged that later that Mart was taken into the protection of this benefactor of his, this chap called Frederick of Saxony. And he's still in hiding when the edict is in Worms is issued and spread throughout the land. The document, in fact, not only condemns him as a heretic, but also forbids the sharing of his promotion or ideas. Effectively, the edict not only bans Luther himself, but bans all of Luther's following and the growing number of followers that are leaving the Catholic Church. The Emperor Charles V claims that the edict has the unanimous counsel and consent of the Imperial Council. However, in fact, the truth is that we could negotiation for the text of that edict to be agreed on, and despite the Emperor's wishes, it will never be enforced in Germany. Instead, the edict is seen and held up by many as evidence and confirmation that the Church is in fact breaking apart. You see, when Martin sat down to write his 95 theses in 1517, he would never have imagined that he would unleash what he thought was just going to be a scholarly debate on this thing that he'd witnessed called the sale of indulgences. You see, it very quickly became something far greater and more disruptive. Luther's writing challenged how European culture and society had been organized for generations and it would change it for generations to come. He kicked at the foundations of the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church began to shake and Reformation ideas were launched into something that very soon would be known as the Protestant Reformation. It was a religious revolution that in truth will spark wars and atrocities and change the political map of Europe forever and to this day. But it all began with Martin Luther being condemned for the ideas that were first outlawed when he wrote his 95 theses in 1521. And then beyond that, the publication of his commentary to the Epistle of the Galatians is seen as the book the document that provided the theological framework from the Reformation that would take place.
and it is that book that I would like to read for you today as the first episode of the podcast. So with a little break there, I'm going to take it now and I'm going to read. I'm going to do the introduction and I'm just going to try off the hoof to read the forward and introduction, which will be episode one of my audiobook version, my podcast version of Martin Luther's commentary to the Galatians. Commentary on the Epistle to the Galatians, 1535 by Martin Luther. Contemporary English version, text by Jeremy R. McCandless. Published by Life Publishing Limited, the text is copyright, the author, copyright 2023 by Jeremy R. McCandless. ISBN number 9-78144-7-594-727. Martin Luther and his commentary to the Galatians. Martin Luther was a professor of theology, a pastor, an author, and a composer. He was also an Augustinian monk and a seminal figure in the Reformation. Luther was ordained to the priesthood in 1507. However, he came to reject several teaching and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. In particular, he disputed their views and indulgences. Luther proposed an academic discussion on the practice and the effectiveness of these indulgences in what has become known as his 95 Theses. His refusal to renounce all of his writings at the demand of Pope Leo X in 1520 and Emperor Charles V in what was known as the Diet of Worms in 1521 resulted in his excommunication by Pope Leo and his condemnation as an outlaw by the Holy Roman Empire. Luther taught that salvation and consequently eternal life were not earned by good deeds, but were received only as the free gift of God's grace through the believer's faith in Jesus Christ as Redeemer for sin. His theology challenged the authority and the office of the Pope by teaching that the Bible was the only source of divinely revealed knowledge and he considered all baptised Christian believers to be part of a holy priesthood. Those who identify with Luther's wider teachings are sometimes to this day called Lutherans, although Luther himself never used that term. He only ever used the term Christian or evangelical as the acceptable name for individuals who profess Christ's call to themselves individually. The translation of the Bible into everyday German instead of Latin, as was the normal at that time, made it more accessible to ordinary people. And that was an event that had such a tremendous impact on both the church and German culture. It fostered the development of a standard version of the German language and influenced the writing of the English translation of the Tyndale Bible, which itself would later greatly influence the King James Version. 
This commentary on Galatians by Martin Luther was a Reformation milestone and had a profound and lasting impact on the Christian faith worldwide. Luther's commentary on Galatians not only solidified his theological convictions, but also laid the foundations for the Protestant Reformation, challenging the prevailing religious practices of his day and paving the way for a whole new era in Christian history. During Luther's time, the Roman Catholic Church dominated the religious landscape and the sale of indulgences was one of its most controversial practices. Luther's commentary on Galatians was published in 1535 and was heavily influenced by his personal struggle with the church's teaching, particularly on this area, and his desire to see it return to the core principles of Christianity as outlined in the biblical scriptures. Paul's letter to Galatians resonates deeply with Luther's own theological journey, particularly its emphasis on justification by faith alone. In this commentary, Luther will vehemently and extensively argue that salvation cannot be achieved through good works or adherence to any religious rituals, but rather through faith in Christ's redemptive work. He emphasised that the righteousness of God is imputed to believers solely by faith, emphasising the transformative power of God's grace. Luther's commentary provided a scriptural basis for his central Reformation doctrine known as sola fide, scripture alone, which has become a defining principle of Protestant theology ever after. Luther fiercely criticised the legalistic tendencies that were prevalent during his time, particularly the notion that salvation could be earned through the adherence to religious law and regulations. He passionately argued that such works-based righteousness only in fact led to spiritual bondage and distorted the understanding of God's grace. Luther's commentary on Galatians dismantled the idea that human effort can merit our salvation, stressing the need instead for a radical reliance on God's mercy and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. His commentary on Galatians also highlighted the theme of freedom in Christ. He urged believers to embrace their freedom from sin and religious bondage, emphasizing that they were no longer slaves children of God. This call to freedom extended to all aspects of life, including spiritual, societal, and of course ecclesiastical as well. Luther's commentary inspired a generation of Christians to break free from the oppressive religious structures that they lived under and sparked a Reformation uh, movement that forever changed the whole course of Western Christianity. And this Commentary in Galatians is considered a seminal work in Christian theology, and as a result, numerous translations of its commentary have been published. Over the centuries, this book has allowed readers from different linguistic backgrounds to engage with Luther's profound insights. The various translations offer unique perspectives and contribute to a broader understanding of Luther's theological thought and his impact on the Christian faith. 
first translation of Luther's commentary on Galatians emerged shortly after its initial publication in 1535. These translations allowed Luther's ideas to spread beyond the German-speaking word, capturing the attentions of theologians and church leaders throughout all of Europe. The accessibility of these early translations fueled the momentum of the Protestant Reformation and provided the foundations for a subsequent interpretation of all Luther's works. For me, translating Luther's commentary on Galatians prevents several challenges due to the complexity of his writing style and the historical context into which it was written. Luther's rich vocabulary and some might say idiosyncratic expressions often required careful consideration to capture his intended meaning accurately. Additionally, the cultural and theological nuances of the 16th century must be carefully conveyed to ensure a faithful representation of Luther's thoughts. In this contemporary version of the text, I have frequently had to grapple with striking a balance between preserving the authenticity of Luther's voice and making the text accessible to modern readers. To this end, I find myself referring to not only just English translations, all of which are over a hundred years old, but I was also profoundly helped by the use of Microsoft Labs translation service to translate some of the original German language editions, some dating in fact back to the 16th century, into a literal word-for-word modern English version. Now in general, in my contemporary English version, I adopted for a literal approach, whilst at the same time striving to maintain fidelity to Luther's original text. However, my main objective overruling everything was that it must have a readability. It would mean using contemporary language as much as possible. In terms of my own background in approaching this, I grew up and was nurtured within a Christian society and served in ministry in a culture very heavily influenced by the Reformation. And that situation, although having its disadvantages in some aspects, certainly was invaluable to this particular endeavour. My hope is, and I trust this project, enables people to gain insights into Luther's theological thinking, particularly his concept of justification by faith alone. By making Luther's insights accessible to the wider modern audience, I hope this book fosters a deeper understanding of his theological thought and its significance. The significance it held for Christianity, whilst at the same time recognising that some of Luther's views are not without problems for us on our modern mindset. However, Luther's insights still continue to shape theological discussions and inspire believers today, reminding us of the importance of a vibrant faith that is centred on God's grace and the liberating power of the gospel message to this day. I do hope you find it can do the same for you. Jeremy R. McCandless, June 2023 Special Note this paraphrase has been adopted for the modern reader from a literal translation by Microsoft Translator of the original German text by George Buchwald. 
with extensive additional help using the 1826 English translation from the complete works of Martin Luther, Volume 2, by the Reverend William Cole of Clare Hall, Cambridge, and the English language translation by Dr. Theodore Conrad Graeber, 1876. Other versions referred to occasionally, where literal translations of individual sections of the text were unclear to me, include the Augsburg edition from 1535, the revised Augsburg edition by Johann Spanningberg from 1543, the Philip Mentleon edition from 1544, Ernst Ludwig Enther edition from 1660, and the revised edition by Friedrich Otto from 1831. In addition, I note I have for the most part kept Luther's original paragraphing. Additional special note. The German term akademisch, translated by most English translators as scholastics, in my estimation could refer to either the Neoplatonic Christian philosophers who were emerging at that time, or meant, might simply have just meant religious scholars in general. I was able to, to find a definitive source that could help me arrive at a final decision. Therefore, throughout this translation, I chose to the render that word as simply scholar or religious scholar and allow the reader to apply his own interpretation by considering the context in which this word or term appears. Okay, that's it. Thank you, friends. So, if you want to support this, well, there's a couple of things you can do. You can buy a copy of this by following the link if you're watching it on video, on Patreon, or YouTube. It won't appear on YouTube for a while. It's going to be on Patreon first, so the people who are supporting me can have a look at it. But also, there's a link there where you can support the launch Kickstarter of it. You can uh, be one of those people who just commit as little as $3 to try and raise this £250 to pay for the first year of the podcast, audiobook version of it, or you can actually commit £20, whereby you can not only do that, but I will post you a free signed copy of the book itself. The book is available to buy, of course, as well on Amazon and all the other places, and I'll put some of those links on there in order for you to do that. So with that said, thank you for joining me, and we'll trust that the podcast does appear in a month or so. If not, I'll still be recording it. If I don't get the launch fund to do it as a separate podcast, it still will appear. Just occasionally put a, a chapter on here or there, or put the whole thing on Patreon for my patrons. So with that said, I'll say bye-bye for now, and I'll see you back here on Monday morning it'll be for me whatever day it works for you on the main Bible Project daily podcast where we'll launch together through the book of Leviticus bye bye for now as a postscript can I just say that the audio in the final podcast will not be the audio taken from this video recording as the quality was too poor <laughs>